Pushing through the market square So many mothers sighing News had just come over We had five years left to cry in News guy wept and told us Oh, was really dying Cried so much his face was wet And I knew he was not lying I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies I saw boys, toys, electric eyes and TVs My brain hurt like a warehouse I had no room to spare I had to cram so many things to store
and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. And that was Holy Holy and Five Years from their live album from 2015. It's because I've got lead vocalist for Holy Holy, Glenn Gregory, here today to talk about their forthcoming Best of Bowie tour and, of course, his career with Heaven 17 and much more. Huge welcome, Glenn. Hi. All right, mate. Clearly, one of the great things to talk about today is the forthcoming Holy Holy tour. Yes, exactly. I've seen you guys live before, and it's a great show celebrating David Bowie. It must be good to to get back and, and play live. Yeah, definitely. It's always good. I mean, this tour has probably been postponed twice already. So, you know, it's really good to to get it up and running finally. And uh, I love playing with the band as well. You know, great, great musicians. It feels, it's kind of loud. It's kind of old fashioned, but in a really positive rock way. You know what I mean? And it's it sounds great. So I'm really looking forward to it. You've been playing with Holy Holy for at least seven years or so now. Is it a chance to explore a, a different side of, of things, given that you previously you'd played live a lot with uh, Heaven 17? Yeah, it's definitely different. In fact, Martin um, Martin Ware believes my voice improved, has improved uh, even more than it had, having done the Holy Holy thing. It's a kind of different, you know, it's a different voice. Uh, it's more, I'm um, kind of, pushing out more and it's a more kind of rock voice than than the normal heaven 17 things and we as you said it's been a while we've done two big tours of america uh, all over the place long tours too long tours <laughs> eight weeks at a time you know that kind of thing so yeah it's it's been good there was the, there was a run of um the longest run i've done of every night i think i did something like 22 or 23 gigs in a row wow it was really weird because it was holy holy and then in between holy holy gigs i'd got i'd had heaven 17 gigs <laughs> so i'd have a day off from holy holy and i had to get on a train and go and do a heaven 17 gig and then go back and do a holy holy gig it was just really what oddly worked out and I, and i ended up doing over 20 gigs in a row which is quite incredible really yeah and, and the thing about david bowie is his influence transcends different genres or types of music and, and i've read that uh, you, you were a bowie fan at an early age anyhow yeah definitely i mean we mark myself and martin and a couple of other friends addy newton who's in a band called clock dva paul bauer we forged student union cards so we could go and see david bowie who was playing at the sheffield student union and we were way too young i think i was probably 15 maybe yeah definitely not 16 yeah maybe possibly even 14 or 15. And we forged these cards using those old kind of John Bull printing sets and, and some sticky back plastic. It was almost like being on Blue Peter. And they looked pretty ropey, to be honest. But, you know, we kind of crushed them up a bit and looked like they'd been in our wallets for years and years. And it worked. And we managed to go and see several bands, including Bowie and, you know, Roxy Music, uh, Bolan, great bands. It's fantastic. And I previously spoken with... Uh... Stefan Emma. Yeah. He's an artist that uh, I think through Tony Visconti, and that was one of the paths to the the, I, the concept of Holy Holy and the first time around um, playing The Man Who Sold the World in its totality live for the first time. Yeah, that was absolutely, definitely um, due to Stefan Emma's album, uh, which I co wrote with him, I think, four songs and sang four songs on the album. International Blue, the album was called. Great album. Listen to it. It's beautiful. Um, but Tony Visconti was producing it 
Stefan had worked with Tony in the in New York uh, and got him over to Abbey Road in London. And we record we did recording and a mixing at Abbey Road. And it was during that period that Tony once turned to me and said uh, in the control room, he said, you know, there's something of David's voice in your voice as I'm kind of mixing it. There's a definite similarity to the timbre in some of your phrasings. And I was, I, you know, I was like very, very pleased that he'd said that. I asked for it in writing, but he wouldn't do it. Hmm. And, you know, that was just that was just something that happened. And then about, I guess it's a case of being in the right place at the right time, because it must have been about a month or so later that I got a call from Tony and unbeknownst to me that he'd been talking with Woody about going out and touring the album The Man Who Sold the World which in its original form had never been toured they played some of the songs but they'd never toured that album at the time and, and he phoned me up and I remember it vividly because it was it was my birthday and um, I was just picking my, my boy up from school and walking back and I got a call, and it was Tony, and he said, "He said, yeah, you know, how are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, you know." He said, "I'm. Um, we're doing. Um, Woody and I are going to do a gig um, tour, and um, we'd like you to sing, you know, Man Who Sold the World." And I misunderstood at first. I thought it was a kind of, you know, maybe several artists going out, and and they wanted me to sing that song, "The Man Who Sold the World." So I said, "Oh yeah, I'd love to do that. I love that song." And I said, "Are there any other songs you'd like me to sing?" And he said, no, I want you to sing all of the songs. We want you to be the singer. And I was like, <laughs> wow, that's, I was, yeah, I was like amazed by that. Slightly kind of taken aback. So I said, okay, well, um, yeah, I'd love to do it. And, and got off the phone and he said, oh, well, I'll get Tom, Tom Wilcox, who was the guy that was putting it all together. He said, I'll get Tom to call you and, and tell you what's going on. And, and which he did. And he then also told me it wasn't just yeah. the man who sold the world. There was going to be other songs as well. So, in the end, the set set was massive. It was it was nearly two hours, I think. So I had a, like 20, 27 songs, I think, to learn. And, you know, you all think you know David Bowie songs, and it's all very well singing them in the car and mm. going la, 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 and the bits that you don't know, but that doesn't wash when you're on stage. So I had to kind of really buckle down and get, get to know all those songs because the way I work is I like to go in deep and, yeah. and I like to really know the songs so I'm not, I'm not thinking at all about the lyrics. I'm just performing the song, you know. So, so it took me took me a while to get all those in, um, but but it was fantastic. And then and then that, that first tour was kind of slightly chaotic. Um, great fun, people on and off stage, mm. but slightly chaotic. And I kind of said, you know, this is really good, and I like it, but. I think we have to kind of hone it down a little bit and, and get more of a get it to be become more focused and more as a band really rather than all these kind of guest guitarists and guest artists, which was it's exciting and it's great and yeah. the audience loved it, but it was just so I just figured it could be more focused. So uh, so we did. So and then the next tour was was more like that and it went really well. People loved it. I love it as well because it is really like a kind of going to see a band as I did when I was kind of 15, 16, 17. It's like a old school, you know, like really it, there's no, there's not a computer in sight. There's nothing on stage. It's just, it's just two guitarists, drummer, keys and saxophone and bass. And that's it. And that's, it sounds fantastic. I love it. Yeah. I remember when I saw Holy Holy Live and it, it's challenging, exciting material in, in that live arena, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, sonically, I think it sounds fantastic. I think the band do a brilliant job. And it is challenging. It's, I tell you, it's challenging vocally because of the range that some of those songs travel through, you know, from beginning to end. You know, like Life on Mars, for instance, kind of starts starts in you know, the quietly and in a key. And by the time you're at the end, you've got you, your octaves are flying all over the place. It's, uh, it is certainly challenging for vocally. The man who sold the world. Oh, wow. 
And then you know, you've been referring to the 1970s and your formative years. That period in the late 70s, especially in Sheffield, was such an incredible time for music. And although you were in bands, you've left London when the, the first incarnation of Human League were recording. Is that right? Yeah, the, the, the timeline is. So I'd been in quite a few bands with Martin and Ian. Uh, the first person I was in a band with was Ian, and we were in a band called Musical Vomit, and uh, Ian had built a synthesizer for some kit, which was just just madness, really, and I think it had a kind of big old organ keyboard, and, it, and, and basically it could either make the sound of a motorbike or the sound of a Dalek in Doctor Who, and that was about it. But other than that, it was a kind of theatrical glam, and this is probably 70... I don't know, 74, 75, pre, 75 maybe, pre-punk, just on the yeah. cusp of punk coming in. But it's, it was kind of like a mix of New York dolls and, um, and glam punk and mad crazy songs. And Ian was in the band, I was in the band. I think I played bass in that band, actually, initially. Oh. And the singer was a guy called Mark Civico. And then, so we kind of then, we formed loads of different bands in that time. Bands with stupid names like Underpants, The Dead Daughters, um, and then culminating in a gig that we did with a band called VDK and the Studs, which was myself, Martin, Ian, mm. uh, two members of Cabaret Voltaire, Richard and Mal, two members of a band called 2.3, Aiden Boys West and the Drummer and Paul Bauer, and Addie Newton, who was, went on to be Clock DVA. And we did this crazy gig at the Salt Lane Arts College where we, it was just madness. And we supported the drones and we refused to get off stage. And there was a real scuffle and it was just, it was just chaotic. And that was the kind of, that was, a, that was on a Friday and they made a big party on Saturday because I had decided at that point that I was going to become a photographer and I was going to move to London, go to NME and all the other kind of papers and, and start to, you know, take photographs and become a photographer, music photographer. So we had this big party. It was a goodbye to Glenn party. And, um, and I left. And in that, in that period that we were messing about with all these bands, Martin had bought a synth because he was the only one that was working. He'd got a job as a computer operator. He got some money, so he got a synth on higher purchase. And um, they'd been writing some instrumental stuff. And when I left, they had the conversation, Martin and Ian, and Addict had had the conversation, well, who are we going to get to sing then? Because Glenn's gone now. And I was always ended up being the singer in all these bands. Glenn's gone, what we're going to do? And Martin said, he actually said this, you can ask him. He said to Ian, well, I don't know if he can sing, but I've got a mate at school called Phil and he's got a brilliant haircut because hmm. he already had his lopsided haircut. So they got Phil in and they gave him the backing track on cassette to being boiled and they said look well go away write some lyrics melody for this come back and if it works you know we'll do it and of course phil came back with being boiled which was just fucking brilliant and uh, and and the rest is history but i was friends throughout that whole period with all of them and and whenever they traveled and gigged anywhere you know south of watford gap they would always stay at my flat in labrook grove and yeah, and that, and that and that was the that was the timeline.
Listen to the voice of Buddha Saying stop your sericulture Little people like your offspring For the life the sun got stuck in Buddha's watching, Buddha's waiting Just because the kid's an orphan Is no excuse for thoughtless slaying gigged all over the place they did lots and lots and lots and eventually when the split happened again by sheer serendipity I was in happened to be in Sheffield that weekend because I was taking photographs of Joe Jackson who's at the Sheffield City Hall for for NME and I phoned Martin and I said are you are you around I'm I'm back in Sheffield for for a couple of nights and he said yeah let's meet in the Red Lion uh, which is a was the pub behind the Sheffield City Hall and that happened to be the day that they'd had their big meeting 
and the band had split. And so Martin and I got drunk. I ended up not even going to take pictures. We just got drunk and we started talking. And he said, would you consider coming back to Sheffield and forming another band with Ian and myself? And I said, yeah, I would. I'd do that. I'll do that. And so that was that was kind of Friday night, Saturday night. And on Monday, I was back knocking at my mum and dad's door saying, I'm just coming back for a bit. I'm going to be in a band. <laughs> and that's it. And then we were then, we were then Heaven 17. We don't need this fascist groove thing. Was that the first track that, that came out of that? Yeah. Wow. That was exactly one week later. We went in the studio on uh, Monday. The only asset that the league had got when when they split up was that they'd got this studio in Sheffield. And when I say studio, it, you know, it's, it's not like anything that you've got in your mind. It was a derelict, an old derelict building that used to be a vet's. And it was like kind of five floors with only one and a half of them that was even vaguely livable. And one of the, one of the, and the big room uh, that they'd got all the studio equipment. But that was the only thing that the, the asset that they'd got. So n- and neither of them wanted to give it up. So we decided to share it. So the Human League worked from 10 in the morning till 10 at night. And Heaven 17 worked from 10 at night till 10 in the morning. And and th- and within one week, it was five days, actually, we'd written and recorded Fascist Grusing. And on the sixth day, John Wilson came in and put the bass on it. And that is when we knew we felt we'd got the Heaven 17 sound, the, the difference that would become uh, between the, the Human League sound, the purely electronic Human League sound, and the new, more kind of, if you, if you will, kind of slightly funk-orientated Heaven 17 sound with synths but, and other instruments. Fascist like a dancing. 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 Fascist like a dancing.
recall that the concept for British Electric Foundation was there, which which gave quite a bit of freedom and, and experimentation and even working with other artists and working with Tina Turner a few times, including on uh, Let's Stay Together, must have just been amazing. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the British Electric Foundation was really in, in situ before Heaven 17, because when Martin and Ed had kind of had enough of being a, in a band, really. In, in, a, in a way, it kind of seemed quite old-fashioned to for them being such a kind of futuristic band to do that old thing where you would write and record an album and then tour it, and then write and record an album and then tour it, which they'd done for the first two. And it hadn't really worked, and everyone was unhappy, and they'd, nobody had made any money, and they, in fact, lost money. So what they decided to do, which was very much forward thinking, everybody kind of does it these days, but it wasn't a thing then. They signed a deal with Virgin as a kind of mini label, British Electric Foundation. And in their contract, they had the rights to sign, I don't know what it was, three or four or five different acts a year. And so that's what they were going to do. And Hem 17 was going to be the first of one of these BEF acts. It was only because we were such good friends and known each other for such a long time. And... It became great fun really quickly and the songs we were writing were prolific and quick and sounded great. And they didn't really then want to kind of step back and just send me out, as it were, with a, you know, to be Heaven 17. We, we kind of stuck together. So Heaven 17 overtook BF for a while. But BF was always there, like you say, and then working, getting a chance to work with other artists like, Tina Turner and many others. It was fantastic fun. It was great. One of the 
best moments when we got Tina to sing that was we were in LA, all, all three of us, and we were going to meet Tina Turner. So we got this night in this car, and went up to a house in the Hollywood Hills or whatever, and got to the front door. And I just kind of rang the doorbell, and Tina Turner opened the door, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's Tina Turner!" Because we were massive fans, you know, River Deep, Mountain Eyes were definitely on the in the top five of our of our songs in that time and to kind of meet and she was so nice she was gorgeous and she kind of cooked us food and we stayed for a couple of hours and chatted and she was just such a lovely person and and we decided that she would come to london and record a couple of tracks for bef for the album and which she did and she loved it and she did ball of confusion had a great time and then Roger, her manager at the time, I think probably still is, said, would you guys be interested in writing some stuff for Tina? And we just started work on the, on the luxury gap. So we didn't feel we'd really got time to kind of concentrate on writing for other people. But did Martin said, well, we, how about we do another, we'll do another cover for Tina for, for the album. And that's when we did Let's Stay Together, which was massively successful and did, in fact, help relaunch Tina's career, I'm sure. Let me say the sense, baby, since we've been together, ooh, loving you forever is all I need. Let me be the one you come running to.
mentioned the luxury gap landmark album now over here in the uk that the big hit was a temptation and you've got strings you've got the, the soulful edge it's a real sort of shift from the first album that you made in terms of the sort of texture of the music yes it is yeah and that was it was a kind of natural progression that was planned really because as i said we wanted to try and find a point of difference between what was the human league of the first two Human League albums to them. I mean, they were carrying on very much in that line, although it being more kind of poppy, it was still very synthetic, uh, very electronic. And we kind of wanted to move, to move away from that, still utilising it and using it and loving it, but to, to add other things to it. And Pentest and Pavement was in one way, one side of that was very electronic with, you know, let's all make a bomb and... Uh, you know, the high, the fighting, that kind of stuff. And then you've got Fascist Groove Thang and Penthouse and Pavement, where we started to integrate and use different instrumentation. We always knew that we wanted to then take, that was the path that we would then follow for uh, the second album, um, which we were doing. And, you know, we'd got Temptation, the, uh, the original Temptation's quite electronic, and, well, it's very electronic, and then the demo of it. And similarly with Let Me Go, and then when we went into the studio, we were using guitarists like Ray Russell and, and, and drummers. And then we had the bright idea. I remember Martin phoning uh, Gemma at Virgin Records and said, oh, we want to put an orchestra on it. Thankfully, you know, record companies were different by then and actually kind of did wild things like that. And she just said, OK, what day do you want them? And so we were like, oh, OK, <laughs> how about next Thursday? So then we met... Um, you know, we, 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 all, we had them orchestrated and the orchestra came in and played. It was just amazing, of course. And that was at Air Studios when they were uh, Oxford Street above where Nike Town is now. And yeah, it was a really natural progression, but, but it was quite a massive change. I've never been closer. I tried to understand that certain feeling. Carved by another's hand But it's too late to hesitate We can't keep on living like this
people in the UK may not know that, but Let Me Go was a huge hit in the States. Yeah, Let Me Go was number one in the dance charts for for quite a while. And um, Temptation was has actually never been released in America. They just went with um, Let Me Go, and, and it was a hit. It was a good hit. Similarly, that, that song kind of evolved from being very electronic, but so seamlessly into that orchestral version of it. it I think that, well, now I know it's my favourite Heaven 17 song, and it's Martin's. It's kind of stayed... It stayed the same, really, from being a demo that was written at 95 Oxford Gardens, just off Ludbrook Grove, to finishing it that night in um, in Air Studios and Oxford at Oxford Circus. It still was the same song, but it had grown to just enormous, you know, this kind of evolved into this orchestral piece of beautiful but the melody was the same and and the feel of it was the same and of course the uh, 303 bass line that Ian Marsh programmed was the same it's just yeah I, I really love that piece of work
And in more recent years, you've collaborated in uh, the duo After Here. And there's some great tracks that people may not know of, uh, like Liar, which was the uh, theme from the, the TV show. And it was great to shine a light on that. How, how did that collaboration uh, start? Um, I guess that uh, we needed, when we decided to, we started playing live late 90s and we just did it very electronically at first. And then I think it was when we decided to do the Luxury Gap in its entirety that we needed to up the band and we needed a, we needed another keyboard player other than Martin and Ian. And we got uh, introduced to Berenice Scott, who uh, I then who is now my partner still in After Here. And she's great. She's a fantastic piano player, really beautiful piano player. Great voice as well, great with melody. She's an artist in her own right. But I in all in this time I'd been writing soundtrack stuff for tv and film and short films and stuff and and even adverts and things like that and i was always doing it on my own and i kind of don't really like being in the studio that much on my own it's i I don't mind it but i end up talking to myself a lot and sometimes i don't you know i'm still in my pajamas at nine o'clock at night Mm. because i just go in there and i'm still working and and i said i just i needed someone to um it was a voice actually i wanted to sing for it was for uh an, an, an advert, I think. I can't remember which one it was. But anyway, I got Bernice to come in and, and we did it and it was great. And then she played some keyboards. And I just asked her, I just said, would you fancy, have you ever thought about writing score? And she said, oh, it's one that I would love to do it. So we ended up working together, writing music for a drama. And during that period, we realised very similar taste in music worked really well together uh, actual physically working you know like one minute i was i'm at the controls and she's at the controls and it worked really well and uh and before long we decided we were going to just write an album as well so not only were we doing the soundtrack stuff we were we'd, we wrote an album and, and we concentrated on that for about a year and then uh, released addict which has got some fantastic songs on it i really love that that album and you know we've gone on and we've just we finished recently scoring Vigil, which was uh, that submarine thing with Saran Jones, which was the BBC's most successful drama for the last kind of five or six years. It was massive. Uh, at the moment, we're both working on a new drama for ITV called uh, The Suspect, which I'm about I'm working on episode four and five now. So we're getting there, nearly there. Uh, so, yeah, we really love working together. It's great fun. i 
Close the podcast. It's just worth giving an, another mention to the the best of Bowie tour with Holy Holy yourself, uh, Tony Visconti, starting on the first of nine dates in in second of March in Birmingham. I've read that Rock and Roll Suicide is one of your favourite songs to sing and play. It is actually, yeah. It's there's there's quite a few of them that are favourites. Being being a Bowie fan, but yeah, there's something I really love singing about that one and that and. Um, Life on Mars. I still occasionally choke up a bit on Life on Mars because, you know, as, as I said, that when David Bowie died whilst we were mid-tour in America, and obviously I nobody knew anything about it. Tony did, but Tony never said a word to anyone. And we all got together that, that next day after his death and Tony said, told us what had happened. He said David knew that he was going to go and that um, he said, if should we carry on? or not and and you get to just turn it's up to you guys you can carry on or not we've got the blessing to carry on do you want to keep going and we said yes we do and and we're still here and it's an amazing it's an amazing it's an amazing thing to do and it's a great gig it really is 
everyone just loves it and it's a long set but for some reason it just goes in no time they're just such fantastic songs it helps to keep the music alive in a, a live setting and uh it's a fabulous show and thank you so much for your time, Glenn. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Brilliant. And uh, are you going to come see the gig? Yes, I think the nearest show is in York. So uh, that's not far away, is it, for me? No, exactly. I'll see you in York then. All right. Thanks, Glenn. Pleasure. Cheers, man. See you later. It's a god awful small affair To the girl with the mousy And the mommy is yelling no and her daddy is told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen As she walks to her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a saddening bore Cause she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.